Good evening. Ronald's most famous sermon is about another night with the frog, so I thought I'd try to do one up on him and do a sermon about boiling a frog. Now, you may have heard the one about the frog that jumped into a pot of water on a stovetop. I don't know when a frog would do that, if it was one of those ancient Egyptian ovens during the plagues that this happened. Um, but as it goes, uh, people talk about this idea that if a frog jumped into a pond of water, uh, that really one of two things would happen. If the pot of water was too hot or the frog worried that uh, this, this might harm it, that it would just jump out uh, and avoid being hurt. But it said that if the temperature of the water was increased very slowly, so slowly that the frog actually perhaps wouldn't be able to sense the change in temperature, that the frog would even so much as boil alive before it noticed that anything was wrong. You may have heard this before. The problem is, biologists love to ruin good analogies because scientists have actually studied frogs and found out that frogs are actually a little better at sensing potentially life-threatening environment changes than the old analogy gives them credit for. So we'll chalk that one up. Uh, in God's favor, since our biologist friends probably won't, that God uh, gave frogs a little bit better uh, of a protection system than that. But the fact is, the analogy is still helpful, right? This idea that these slow, minute changes that could lead to harm are sometimes so subtle, uh, so undetectable, that by the time that we're in trouble, we don't really know that it's happened. And the humbling thing is, it doesn't really apply so much to frogs, apparently, but it does still apply to humans, right? Humans are the ones that tend to find themselves in situations they didn't expect and maybe never expected. But it's not just the change that gets us, right? Slow change can take us unawares, but sometimes it's just flat ignorance that gets us in hot water. Now, I don't use that word in an insulting sense, right? I'm talking about uh, not stupid ignorance, but just rather ignorance of just not knowing, right? Sometimes we don't know a fact or uh, the reality of something that might hurt us. And because of that, we can find ourselves in situations that are quietly hurting us. Case in point, the ladies in this picture are involved in the manufacture of mattresses that contained raw and processed asbestos. You guys have probably heard of asbestos. At the time, asbestos was commonly used in all kinds of products. You would find it anywhere. It was cheap, plentiful, flame resistant, so that if you dropped your cigarette in bed, it wouldn't set your bed on fire. It was water resistant. It was a good insulator. You really could not beat asbestos. Well, what's the problem? Well, they found out what happens when you're exposed to asbestos. In the 1940s, they started doing uh, some research, and they started tying asbestos exposure to various diseases and cancers. If you've ever watched TV during the off times, you've heard a lawyer talk about what? Mesothelioma, right? It is asbestos exposure, and because of that, you had people that worked in construction and manufacturing and other similar jobs that were at high risk for developing health problems because of this exposure. It's actually estimated that to this day, over 10,000 people die of asbestos-related conditions every year in the United States of America. And so we see the repercussions of a slow-moving and silent threat, right? They didn't un understand. Everything seemed fine, but years later, uh, things didn't turn out so great. But not every threat moves so slow. Sometimes threats are fast and equally undetectable. In the early morning hours of December 3rd in 1984, the Union Carbide India Limited pesticide plant in the suburbs of Bhopal, India, experienced a massive gas leak. 
it released 30 tons of methyl isocyanate into the atmosphere in the span of an hour. We're talking a massive gas leak. Methyl isocyanate is incredibly toxic. I can't tell you how toxic this gas is. It's said to have a very sharp odor when it's in its gaseous form, but it can actually enter your system and start making you sick, start hurting you before you can even smell it. As this gas cloud entered the villages surrounding the factory on that December morning, the residents woke up coughing, they woke up with their throats burning, vomiting, and all kinds of other terrible ailments. Some of them started running. They just they didn't put their shoes on. They started running as fast as they could. Others got into vehicles. They said because the gas is heavy, children that were lower to the ground were more affected. By the time the sun rose, over 2,000 people were dead. In the course of hours, over 2,000 people died. In the following years, as many as 15,000 deaths had been contributed to this leak with some 500,000 affected survivors. It is the worst industrial disaster in human and world history. Slow change, silent threats, invisible killers. All of these things are, are terrifying to us because we want to know danger that's around us. We want to know when something is amiss and something is wrong, but all of these things can sl slip beneath our radar. We, we don't recognize it. We don't see it coming, and they can quietly eat away at people's well-being, and they can be fatal before we even realize that a risk is present. So the question tonight is, is there such a threat that exists to us today? And I mean us as in the Center Grove Church of Christ. Of course, I'm not talking about a gas leak in this building or some other kind of toxic exposure. What I'm talking about is a spiritual hazard, a hazard that could undermine our efforts to serve God, to raise Christian families, and ultimately our desire to live forever in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand before you and, and my statement tonight is that there is such a threat that we face and that we have been suffering from it already. You don't have to look very far around you to see the symptoms of what's been happening. You think about all the empty pews in churches around the country. I could say country, I could say county, but the truth is church attendance is dropping rapidly. Everyone is saying this. Everyone's noticing it. You see more and more of the picture on the screen. You see once vibrant churches that are dying out and closing their doors. Now, there's a lot of things that contribute to this. We don't want to you know, pin it on one, but we have to say that there's something negative going on, and the data is not promising. The, the percentage of church attendees ages 18 to 22 that drop out of attending church during those years, 66%. That's two-thirds. If we looked at this church and think about the last two generations, think of all the, the faces that have come in and out of these doors, that might sound about right. We think about people that we've seen that we don't see anymore. Now, these numbers, again, are polls based on widespread Christianity, in quotes, the, the whole denominational sweep, if you will, but I think that they're accurate within the Lord's church on average. The thing is, don't think that we're exempt, right? We, Center Grove is a wonderful congregation. We're a faithful congregation, one of the largest congregations in this area with many small churches around us, right? We've done very well, but we're not exempt, right? We're not exempt from these problems. We, we aren't uh, cleared from having to worry about it because we know there are those, as we've mentioned, that have been here, that have gone, right? Now, some, again, were, were young people. They left, and they probably won't be back. We, we pray for God's grace and time for repentance for them, 
but others weren't young, right? They were older, and they've left us and gone on to their reward, and they leave behind an empty space in a pew, right? We can think of faces over the years that we've loved that have left us to go on. You know, I stand here looking at a church that I love dearly. I love the family here at Center Grove, but it's just the facts that the makeup of this congregation will probably look radically different in 10 to 15 years. That's just the reality. Statistically, some will leave and some will die. We will experience change just as everyone else does. This, this is the way of the world. It's the way that the world works in some respects. And we have assurance that for those that go on, that are faithful, that they can look forward to a home in heaven. They can look forward to the return of Jesus. But unless that return comes tonight, we all have that appointment with death to look forward to. So I'm not suggesting we worry about things that we can't change. But what I am telling you is that there is a real problem that's occurring. There's a real danger lurking about. And the scariest thing is it isn't a problem that's just out there, out those back doors. It's a problem that comes in here into this church building. There's a possibility that there are people that go to church, their church, they're there every time the doors are open. They worship correctly. They, they don't uh, do any uh, extra biblical worship practices. They follow that. In fact, they follow the rules of life generally. They don't commit the big sins. They don't make a habit of murdering people or, or committing adultery. They're what you would call good people. Maybe they even read their Bible. They read their Bible daily, perhaps, and, and keep it up on their checklist. The problem is that they think exactly like the world thinks. I'm talking about up here, right? We've said everything on the list above. It looks like everything is good and everything is right. But the problem is they think like the world thinks. And that's because they've been affected and infected by the culture around them. Now, this can happen to anyone without realizing it. And you're likely not going to see the symptoms of it in a Sunday morning worship service. But you will see the symptoms of it in the lives of those people from Monday to Saturday. You will see it in the lives of people on their social media, their Facebook feeds, their Instagram posts. But I'm not pointing the finger at any one certain group of people as the only ones affected by this. Because I think that in some part we've all been exposed. We all live in this culture. We've all got our own baggage that we bring, in up, we bring into the church. These presuppositions that have built up a fortress in our mind. And we will stay in the church, I believe. We'll stay in this congregation but the pot is already boiling. Again, we've already been infected, and a worldly mind in the church grants the devil a foothold in what seems to be a visibly righteous congregation. Now, it's not that there is no hope. There's all kinds of hope. None of us are exempt from the influence of the world, but we have a God, a Savior, who is in the business of changing and renewing minds. We have a God who, for the entire span of history, has used forgiven sinful people and use them to accomplish his will so we aren't hopeless but we have to be honest if there is a problem and the first step is admitting that you have a problem then comes the solution and I'm calling this lesson and maybe more after it we'll see if I have more to say on this thought detox reclaiming the mind for Christ what is in our heads that poses a threat to our relationship with God what baggage are we carrying? What is hidden up here that maybe we don't even realize that can cause a problem when it comes to our Christian walk? If we can identify it and shine a light on that problem, then maybe we can move into the future 
knowing better and doing better and trying our best to serve God. As we think about this, first I want to note that this is not a new problem. We have the same thing happening in a case study in the New Testament with the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a church with a lot of problems. If you've been listening to Brother John's Sunday morning class, I believe he's in 1 Corinthians right now, you'll know that the church at Corinth has all sorts of problems. And we have two letters from the Apostle Paul that help give us a picture, if you will, of the issues that they were facing at the time. But what's important to note at the start of 1 Corinthians is Paul says this, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. It's important to note that the church at Corinth was indeed a church of Christ, a church belonging to Christ. They are saved people. There are people that though they are sinners, they can enjoy fellowship with Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. But even so, Problems crop up almost immediately as we read this letter. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal." Paul's first indictment of the Corinthian church has to do with the fact that he could not speak to them on a spiritual level. He couldn't talk to them about spiritual things, and the reason was that their minds were still like the world. They thought like worldly people thought, and that meant they acted like worldly people acted. And this manifested in multiple issues in the church. We could talk about their issues when it came to the Lord's Supper, about the misunderstanding, about sexual issues that went on. But perhaps the most famous issue is the scandalous situation taking place right in the midst of their assembly, right? We remember in 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul said that the church was allowing this illicit relationship to continue in their midst and that that influence was spreading throughout the whole congregation just like that little bit of leaven. And ironically, he says not even the pagan Gentiles would imagine or think up a situation like this. So we see that the mind was manifesting in the way that they acted. But as sensational as the sin of the man with his father's wife was, I think the most telling clue of the Corinthians state of mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look what Paul says. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What are you talking about, Paul? Why would they be believing in vain? Well, look what he goes on to say. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. For some reason, there were those in Corinth that doubted the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Now, I believe that we can see from the text that they did not deny the resurrection of Jesus I believe they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but rather they refused to believe that all people would rise from the dead 
at the time of the judgment. And that's why Paul is quick to tell them that they can't have it both ways. Either Jesus rose, and so will we, or we will not, and thus Jesus didn't either. That's the options that he gives them. But most important for our discussion tonight is Paul's charge against the doubting Corinthians in the next passage. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, Paul says this denial of the resurrection, this worldly mindset, is in complete opposition to the life of sacrifice that he and other Christians were living. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, let's just do the best to enjoy life to the fullest because it doesn't matter. We're going to die anyway. And that's what Paul says. But at the end of this passage, Paul makes this famous quote, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. We know this verse as we often use it as a beat stick on teenagers because often teenagers need a beat stick to be told, choose good friends, pick good friends, make good decisions. But contextually, what is Paul saying here? He says, some of you don't believe in the resurrection. So what's he saying to them with this statement? What bad influences have the Corinthians been corrupted by that they have this false belief? I think this is the influence that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the most intelligent people of the day, right? The Greek philosophers. Now, again, this was during the time of the Roman Empire, but Greek philosophy as kind of a school of thought had continued on and really grown at this time. In fact, it was at the height of its reign during the time of the New Testament writings. And Corinth, being a large port city in Greece, would have known the influence of all of these orators who pushed their teachings as truth, these Greek philosophies. And the truth is there was no place in the belief system of Greek philosophy or Greek religion for the resurrection of any person, whether it be Jesus or otherwise. Indeed, they sought to explain the world by a system that would expand their ability for insight, for their pride, for their pleasure, and ultimately to paint a world that kind of existed in the palm of their hand. They had it all figured out the way that things worked. Paul had some words for the churches that he ministered to about the wise philosophers of the day. He said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. He goes on in Colossians 2 to say, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In all of these passages, Paul is stressing the importance of guarding our mind. The mind has always been desirable property for those that want to kind of foist their power on other people. They want to be the teacher. They want to be the intelligent one, and they prey on the minds of others and try to get them to think as they do. The Bible tells us that the mind can be captured. It can be misguided by the lies of Satan and the world. It can be caught up and vulnerable to the corruption of sin. And so we must be diligent to avoid giving our mind over to the devil, right? We have to gird up the loins of our mind. We have to protect it from those influences. But the Bible also teaches that the mind can be redeemed and used for great good. 
As was read earlier, we see that as Paul paints Christianity in Romans 12, it is a body and mind experience, right? Because we are to give up our bodies and present them as a sacrifice to God in our service. But not only that, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If the mind is renewed, if the mind is changed to think in a godly way, then we, our whole lives can be molded and shaped by the will of God. But the problem is, again, we all live in a culture. None of us are outside of culture. For the Corinthians, they lived in a pagan culture that was pushing all kinds of issues and problems down their throat. When you think about the city in Corinth that housed the temple to Aphrodite, and it was famous for the amount of prostitution that went on at that temple. And because of it, the city was run rampant with sexual sin, all in the name of pagan worship, right? And so the culture around them was pushing them towards sin. The philosophy of the time was pushing them towards sin. And what happened? This culture got inside of the church. It started to take root, and it revealed itself as sin in their midst. But let's switch gears and talk about American culture. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home in our history. It is undebatable. I'll go that far. It's undebatable that the culture of America has been inseparably linked to Christianity and a belief in God from the very beginning. I don't think you would even uh, go as far as to say anything different. No one, even if they disagree with it, can say anything different. You think about the Declaration of Independence. You don't have to read down very many lines at all before you're going to start see references to nature's God and the fact that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain rights. Or maybe we could look at the fact that culturally presidents have always been inaugurated taking their oath of office on what? The Bible, right? We still have George Washington's inaugural Bible. You can go and see that, I believe, in D.C., and it's been used since then. And it's kind of a mockery now when you look at the virtuousness of recent politicians that have been sworn in on Bibles. And yet, it's the truth of the matter that this is what was always used. Look at this picture. This picture was taken less than 70 years ago. This is New York City in Easter 1956. And New York City is a place that has become synonymous with every transgression of traditional values and morality under the sun. And they had buildings lit up with what shape? Cross. You can see three crosses on those buildings. Now, time would fail to show all the ways that our cultural identity is bound up in the worldview of the Bible. And I want to be clear, the culture of the past did not mean that America was a perfect nation. It did not keep us from being sinners and doing sinful things and to constantly be in need of the grace of God. But if you have to choose between the images I've shown you tonight and a White House lit up with rainbow colors in support of the LGBT movement, which would you choose? Which is a healthier culture to come up in, to be around, to be influenced by? The fact of the matter is, as we see this picture, the picture of the cross and the flag, things aren't this way anymore. Things have rapidly changed. And it's the understatement of the century, and you don't need me to tell you that, but you know things have changed. This lesson is about silent and unexpected dangers, and this is obvious to everyone, and I will be honest with you about that. I don't worry about the people in this room missing it, that things have gone downhill morally in some ways, that things have gone in the wrong direction. 
In fact, I don't really worry about doctrinal truth being an issue in this church. Now, again, every generation has to refight some battles, but we have a multiplicity of teachers and preachers who are dedicated to teaching the truth of the Bible and teaching it accurately and, and preaching out against doctrinal error. And so, again, I don't see for us that being as much of an issue, but I know that everyone has blind spots. Everyone has blind spots. And so while we hold up our shield against doctrinal error, an error that could come into this church building, at the same time we live in this culture that is constantly attacking us. And we know that the devil is adaptable. He's as crafty as a snake and as vicious as a lion. And it's my fear that his best way to find a gap in the wall of this church building is to fill our hearts with all of this cultural baggage that we don't even realize that we're picking up from the outside world. As we think about that, let me give you an example. Everyone who's old enough to kind of know what this is knows, right? You've seen on the TV the images of a pride parade, people going out in the streets and celebrating and flaunting their homosexual identity. In this building, we understand that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. It's black and white. It's book, chapter, verse. We can go there and understand that, but things are getting stranger, right? We have the transgender movement that has exploded in our country. As young people are convinced that their birth gender is a mistake and that they're actually one of a vast spectrum of sexual orientations or genders at any given time. Where does this thinking come from? You say, well, it just seems like it happened overnight, but it hasn't happened overnight. We've, we've been down this road to the point where a, a man can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and people take that on face value. That doesn't happen over the course of a year or a few years. An investigation really takes us back about 400 years. This is uh, the French philosopher René Descartes. And he, in 1637, said, I suppose, as he thought about life, that all the objects that had ever entered into my mind when awake had in them no more truth than the illusions of my dreams. This man is saying, reality is just as fake as a dream. But immediately upon this, I observed that whilst I thus wished to think that all was false, it was absolutely necessary that I, who thus thought, should be something. And as I observed that this truth, I think, therefore, I am. What is he saying? Well, the only thing real is what happens up here. And I know that that's real, so I must be real. Well, how does it go after that? You have this man, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's a Swiss philosopher that lived about 150 years later. And he wrote a book called Confessions, where he confessed to, again, uh, the, the true autobiography of his life. And this is what Rousseau said. The particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul that I promise, and to relate to it faithfully, I require no other memorandum. All I need to do, as I have done up until now, is to look inside myself. What's Rousseau saying? All that matters is what's on the inside, right? How I feel is what's important. The events of my life, you could watch them with a video camera, but you don't get the true story unless I tell you what happened inside of me. This is the same man that in this book of confessions admitted to five children with his mistress, and he just took them all to the orphanage as soon as they were born, right? He didn't want to actually raise them and care for them, so you can see what kind of person that he was. But what's the message that so slowly begins to come into philosophy? It's what's on the inside inside that counts. Now you say that doesn't sound so bad. 
How many children have we told it's what's on the inside that counts? It's about self-esteem, right? It's about well, how you look doesn't matter, you know, all of this. What matters is the person that you are on the inside. But what if we take that to the logical extreme? This is a photo from a documentary called Born in the Wrong Body. And these three people are holding up pictures of themselves as young women. And now look at them. It's an abomination. I don't hate these people. They don't make me sick because of who they are, but it makes me sick that we've allowed this to happen. That we've allowed our country to get to a point to where people believe that they can change their identity down to the very chromosome. They can't, but they believe that they can. Who are the salespeople that are selling these kind of ideologies? We know that it's happening here. That's happening in the classroom, that teachers, again, sometimes well-meaning teachers, are helping to fuel children that will go on to make decisions that nobody could have imagined. It starts there. It goes here to higher education. This is a picture of Harvard, but it's happening closer than Harvard, I can tell you that. It's happening a lot closer to home than that. We know that this box has continued to sell ideologies over the course of generations. It's changed literally the course of history and the things that have come out. But I want to be a little bit more specific than that. Think about the Disneyfication. I've got to owe this word to Brother Chris Mayberry in a conversation we had recently. Disney has a stranglehold on the world. They've had a stranglehold on me since my childhood. I've seen every single movie that they've ever put out and several that are from before my time. I love a good Disney movie. My kids love Disney movies. They love watching them. But what is Disney trying to do? right? Ultimately, we, you might have heard the news about this movie, Strange World. It seems like they kind of buried it in a weird way, but it came out recently. It's the first Disney movie to ever have a gay leading character that talks about being interested in other young men. That's, uh, you know, he's a teenager in the movie. It's the first one to ever openly show that in a movie. And you say, well, this is what Disney is trying to do. They're trying to shove homosexuality down our throats, and they are. Uh, they're trying to push these agendas, and they are. But I'm talking about even before that. Now, I expect an audible gasp when I go to this next slide, but please bear with me. Disney has always pushed ideology in their movies. I love pretty much every movie that you see here. My children love all of these movies. We watch them, so don't go home and say, Titus says to burn your Moana DVD and make your kids cry. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Disney has always said it's what's on the inside that counts. And I don't care what you are, if you believe yourself to be something different, then you can be it. The words to the song of Mulan, when will my reflection show who I am inside? And you say, well, the person that wrote that wasn't thinking about transgenderism, but the transgender people seem to think that they were. And Disney seems to be happy to push that ideology as it continues. And as you think about Moana there on the end, think about all the Disney movies that the message of is society is trying to bring you down. Your family hates you. Your parents are stupid. You have a one true path in life. Your heart is the most true thing. Follow your dreams and go where your heart will take you. That's the message of almost every Disney movie. Now, again, these are great movies, but don't think that our kids don't pick up on this message. The main thing is to be true to your heart. Follow your heart. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Proverbs says this is, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so we see the message, follow your heart, do what makes you happy, go on your path. That's not what the Bible says to do. 
That's not the biblical worldview about things. Well, other things that I don't think would cause a problem here, I don't think that we will ever have a female preacher here at Center Grove. This is something you see in the larger religious world, but I think we're pretty well guarded against having a woman come up and speak in the assembly. Well, what are our kids learning, right? I remember seeing the movie Frozen for the first time, and it was just a sensation, right? Everyone was singing Let It Go, and, and the children love it. And I remember thinking to myself, what an interesting twist on the movie that the main character is a strong, independent woman that doesn't need a prince to save her or a king to rule with. That's really neat. And then I thought about that. That's not the biblical picture of womanhood, that's not the biblical picture of aspiring what to do with your life. And yet this is being pushed. And beyond that, our children are being pushed to see that there's no functional difference between men and women. That's not the biblical view. We don't like it. Again, we want our daughters to be empowered, to be able to accomplish the things they want to accomplish. But there are people out there that want to find empowered women and teach them a thing or two about who they should be. These are scary, scary ideologies that we see at play. I don't think that we'll ever, you know, this morning Brother John talked about why we don't baptize babies in this church. And I don't believe you will ever see an infant baptism take place at Center Grove. But what you will see in this church and other churches is parents giving their children cell phones. Very young age, right? You'll see parents that are inducing in their children the access to all kinds of things out in the world. And the reality is now we know that the average age of first exposure to porn is... 9 to 11 years old. Silas is almost 5. That's 4 years away. I can't imagine my son in 4 years being exposed to this. And yet the church so often turns a blind eye to the problem. They say, well, the parents will handle that. And the parents don't. No direction is given. And our children are being thrown into the sexual meat grinder. It's awful. It's awful what is happening. We see these and we see other toxins that are being fed to us. Again, things that we don't think about. We think about hyper-individuality, right? It's just you against the world. It's you against everyone else. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're part of a family, that we have each other to rely on, but we don't see that in the world. We see secularism, being told you can be totally fulfilled without God. You don't need religion. You don't need any higher power. You don't need any other calling to rely on. Just focus on the good things in your life and you'll be happy. Others turn to scientism, right? More and more, maybe the growing religion in the world is what? Science. I believe in science. I believe what science tells me. I saw one article that said we should honor what evolution taught us and, and make slow incremental improvements to our life. It's the biggest bunch of baloney I've ever heard. That evolution is now a god that we should honor by following what it taught us. Feminism. One of the movements that's done the most damage in our country and in the culture around the world. All of these things that are being pushed. And then even Gnosticism, the idea that our bodies are useless, right? That we need to transcend into some uh, metaverse or some uh, you know, uh, other universe kind of thing, turn into robots, I don't know. These are things that people are talking about. Now, again, they're not always found in the pages of the Bible explicitly. They're not talked about in the church, but this is what our children are being introduced to. This is what they're being taught about. This is what the news is talking about. And if they have a cell phone, they probably already know more about it than you do. This is what is happening around us. Well, what is the antidote to all of this? All of these, this baggage that's being thrown at our children, being thrown at us from the culture. We can see in 2 Corinthians 10, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul says we don't think like the world because we have captured our minds. We have decided that they are going to belong to Christ and that every thought is going to be put towards the betterment of his kingdom. 2 Corinthians 10, But you have not learned so in Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And finally, brethren, whatever things are good, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Tonight, this has been a a kind of a survey view of a lot of different problems that are going on, and I've barely touched on most of them. And in some ways, you may think, well, this seems kind of like you're, you're, you're splitting hairs, right? This is small stuff. This stuff doesn't really make a difference. The proof is in the pudding. We see what's happened over the last two generations. We see what's happening on the world outside. And I think for far too long, we've spoken in generalities. Well, we just need to do what God says. Well, our children, they hear that, but they're facing very specific problems. So I think we need to be more detailed. I think we need to be more specific about what these ideologies are, the toxic way that they affect our mind, and how that we can go about improving it, fixing it, shining a light on it so that They can have ammunition. Our children need ammunition to bring down those strongholds, to be able to gird up the loins of their mind. And it's up to us as Christians for each other to prepare each other to do that. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, if you have found yourself swept up in the sway of the world, of of the culture that we live in and, and find yourself in sin, Jesus offers you hope. Jesus offers you salvation. You can be baptized into his church tonight and leave here forgiven of your sins. But for most of us here tonight that are Christians, The scariest thing about this topic for me as I study it for myself is what have I given ground on? Where am I giving into the culture? Where have I become like the world around me? Where has my mind become just like everyone else's? 